Welcome back to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Jerryland Electric Cooperative. Uh, this is the second part of a two-part series where we're digging into all things power supply. If you missed the first part, I recommend you go back and listen to it. In that episode, uh, our General Manager, Tony Anderson, and the President and CEO of Wolverine Power Cooperative, Eric Baker and I, talked about a lot, <laughs> but mostly we talked about the ways that uh, volatility in natural gas markets and also significant investment in infrastructure, including electric transmission in Michigan, are impacting electric co-ops and their members. In this episode, part two of this two-part series, we continue our conversation with Tony, Eric, Tony and Eric and get kind of their perspectives on the future of electric generation, transmission, and distribution in Michigan and what it will mean for the long-term reliability of our grid. So please listen in as Tony and Eric and I discuss power supply in Michigan. So in our uh, last podcast, we talked a lot about what was kind of driving the trends in power supply costs right now. We talked about natural gas volatility. We talked about um, major investments we've been making in Michigan and transmission. Uh, I guess what I want to start off by talking about right now is if you were to kind of look into a crystal ball and look out into the future, um, can you just really briefly talk about what you see in the next five to ten years in terms of volatility in the MISO market, which is the market we're in? Are we in a good place or, or do we have to prepare for more volatility going forward? I think we're going to have to prepare for more volatility. Um, the Again, I, it, it sounds like I'm a coal advocate, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm really agnostic as to the, the way we create electricity. But one of the good things about coal, among its many challenging aspects, but one of the good things about coal is, I guess there's two good things. One is you can look out the window and see your fuel supply for the next 30 days. You, you can't do that with any other, any other asset other than maybe a nuclear plant. Um, the other thing with coal is pricing with coal tends to be very, very stable. It might move a percent or two in a year, but in natural gas, it's up and down and up and down, and I think it will continue to be that with that way. The second bit of that is most of the power that's, that's replacing that in our future will be more renewable power. And so that creates even more extremes because you have periods in the daytime like you have in California where you've got too much generation of solar power, so it's almost free, and in some cases, prices are negative. We see that in the upper Midwest, in Tony's old stomping ground in the Dakotas, where there are times of the day where you will be paid to, take, to use electricity. They can't get all the generation they have to market. Um, so you've got these intermittent resources with wind and solar that will create deeper troughs and low pricing, but then create more scarcity, which will create higher prices in other times of the day, month, and year. And so I think we're going to see more price volatility probably going forward. And ultimately, it's all tied to the amount of power you're producing at the time that there's a certain amount of power people want to purchase, right? Like that's the, that's the, the simple math of our job is how, how much do people want at what point in time and how much am I producing at what point in time? Historically, we've had a lot of control over the second half of that equation. And so we've been able to, whether it's a coal plant or a natural gas plant, we turn it on when we want it and we provide power and people want to use it. But in the future, what we're seeing is volatility essentially on both sides of this market, right? And intermittency on both sides of this market. And so uh, one of the things that a lot of utilities are looking at is to what extent can we partner with our our customers for an investor in utility or members for a co-op 
and help to create more certainty on both sides of this equation, right? Or help to uh, have available demand when I have available supply that I want to do something with it, et cetera. So I want to talk a little bit about what role the idea of demand management might play in the future and any predictions on kind of what we can do with demand management. And, and I'll, I'll let both of you kind of take that and run. Well, at Cherryland, we're, we're exploring that right now is how, what can we do to promote the sale of electricity and at the same time uh, level our demand, you know? And I'm struggling with that answer right now because I don't see people wanting to change their behavioral habits from, you know, we all get home at the same time, we all wash our clothes at the same time. How, how am I gonna get somebody who works from eight to five to wash their clothes in the off-peak time from one to four in the afternoon? I don't have an answer for that. We're, we're working on that answer, but today I don't know what it is. Well, I think there's a lot at stake in this because what we're seeing, and Eric, you can certainly um, talk to this more than I can, but uh, for a lot of utilities, long-term planning, a portion of that is an assumption about the ability to control the other side of the meter in some way. Yeah. These, these are... These programs have, uh, have been around for a long time, and they've tended to be not particularly, um, not, not particularly productive, especially at the residential level. They've had, we've had some success with, with different pricing windows and time of use windows with industrial and commercial customers but they have tended not to be very effective at the residential level. And I think it's, a lot of it goes to, to Tony's point. When people get home, that's their sanctuary and they've, they've evolved their life, they don't tend to wanna make their personal decisions around energy policy. It's, um, Speak you for know, yourself, that's all I do. I, I've, I've, <laughs> I've grown up in this business, I've worked in the, my entire career, and when I go home, that I just don't really wanna think about demand response or, or that. And so, in the traditional sense, I don't think those programs are super effective. Now, here's the other side of the coin. As we get more and more distributed computing power in the world, I don't think it's the individual customer, or in your case, the member, that will make that decision. I think, the, I think appliances will become smarter, and our job will be to get the price signal to you so you can get it to your members. And the last rate design we did started to set the stage for that so that we can deliver to you more price signals so that ultimately I think the, the appliance will make that decision. So a perfect example is today you could charge your electric car right during the middle of the day during the peak window and I'd be very happy. There's plenty of power to go around today. If in the future, though, I think what we're going to do is send you a signal. Somehow that will get to the customer, and the customer's um, car will decide when it thinks it should charge based on the optimum price profile you've sent them, and it will charge either at midnight or it'll start charging right now. And it'll make those decisions as soon as you plug it into the wall. And I think we'll have more and more of smart grid, smart appliance sort of things happening. Whether that happens three years from now or 13 years from now, that's where it's pretty unclear for um, for utility executives. Is the technology ready and our customers ready for that? Yeah. 
that, that means everybody has to have a smart fridge, smart dishwasher, hooked to the internet. Hooked to the internet. And, and more and more people need EVs. You know, EVs is the easiest solution in the yeah. whole future because we could, we could program those in off-peak times. And I'm not worried about EVs at all. I'm, I'm, when I worry, it's about the everyday stuff, the washing clothes and washing dishes. And how do I get that off-peak? I, I don't see a lot of that happening either. Well, when we designed the technology that can let my washer know when to wash the clothes, if it could also dry and fold them, I would really, I would be 100% on board. I will sign up for that rate program right away. But no, I think this is a, I think you both made a really important point. When we talk about, and we've been very, very aggressive with promoting electric vehicles here at Cherryland, and a lot of times when we talk about that, the immediate response we get from the public is, well, you're, you, all we hear about is these kind of tight power supply markets and and how, how, how will we possible, possibly power them? But this is the beauty of it. And you hinted at this, Eric, at the beginning of this podcast. We have times when we have a lot of electric generation available to us. EVs potentially become a good place to put that, right? Because they're sitting in your garage overnight when not a lot of other things are on. Yeah, we're going to build generation for the peak periods, and that generation is going to sit there in the non-peak periods. So how do we make the best use out of that generation in the non-peak periods is one of the keys to our future, and EVs help do that. With the investment that our members have allowed us to make and the flexible um, and, and clean peaking assets that Wolverine has now, Quite literally, Wolverine could triple its sales to members and not have to build another fossil fuel plant if we could utilize that energy um, more effectively in the shoulder periods and off-peak periods. So um, there's a lot of additional ener- energy um, capacity within our within a, in our network, not just with Wolverine, but in the market to to do more electrification. And I and I think that's really important. We've tended to think about conservation programs, energy efficiency programs. In Michigan, it's energy optimization, and then it changed to uh, electric waste reduction. I think I got the, the, the history of that right, but in the nomenclature. But we always think it's usually talked about in the context of saving electricity, using less electricity. And in fact, the law has been written around how much can you demonstrate less sales. And I really think that's a public policy mistake long term. In beneficial electrification, you will sell more electricity. The key is using it more efficiently with the grid that we've already built, with the peaking assets that we've already built, to optimize that such that we can fill in the gaps with renewable resources like solar and wind. And and it's not just about reducing sales, it's about optimizing a grid that has tremendous capacity and really tremendous flexibility if we electrify more devices that have historically been gas or um, fossil fuel powered. What, what people need to realize is that the peak demand that we build so much generation for is only a couple hours a day. That leaves us 22 hours of the day that we could do something else with that generation if we had the opportunity. And that's what we're trying to do when we talk about beneficial electrification. And, and Tony, you've talked about this and said it and probably 50 managers columns, but in addition to that, the more kilowatt hours we have to spread our cost across, the better we're able to manage our costs for everyone, which is ultimately the, the yeah. kind of the topic of this podcast. How do we help Safe. manage costs for everyone? Yep. Safe, reliable, affordable. The member wants affordable. I, I can give you more affordable if I can sell more kilowatt hours. At, how, t- how, at times that benefit yeah, everyone. Yeah. And I have 22 hours of a day available to sell more kilowatt hours. Mm-hmm. And so how do I get 
more done in those 22 hours. And so certainly um, technologies that may not exist today, but that at some point in time allow us to help manage when things that are otherwise kind of operating in the background in your home anyway are operating. New technologies like electric vehicles. I would also add a plug that the only path to a carbon-free transportation future is the electrification of vehicles, so it has an added environmental benefit if we're hooking them up to our grid. Um, but the, the third thing that we hear a lot, and I want to give you both the chance to respond to, is that distributed generation, such as net metered solar, can help decrease the need to build new generation and decrease the number of kilowatt hours we need to move across our transmission system, especially during peak times. Um, can you just kind of kind of react to the role that you think distributed generation might have in, in this conversation and helping to control power supply costs? Well, what, when people talk about solar helping at the peak times, they're talking about lunchtime. And honestly, lunchtime isn't our peak around here. We're, traditionally, 12 months out of the year, we're going to peak between 5 and 7 p.m. The sun's going down at that point all times of the year. Yeah, we have good sun in the summertime at 5, but it's still diminishing. And so it just doesn't cut it. Solar doesn't help me on my peak most of the time. 90% of the time it doesn't help me on my peak. And wind is unpredictable. You know, we peak in July. Our, our year-long peak, our year-round peak in, is highest in July. That's our lowest wind month. I'm, I'm not big on solar and wind for helping at peak periods. I agree with Tony. I, I think I, I think in, in areas where you have difficult access to power, uh, I think um, small solar projects make sense. I think for some utilities where costs have gotten totally out of control, it might be more cost effective for you to self-generate some of that power. The concern is most of those, very few that I'm aware of, actually allow the customer to detach from the grid. And so they, they want the Cherryland system there for all those hours when it just really isn't a very effective way to make electricity with a solar panel alone. They want you there when it's really hot, when it's really cold, when it's really dark, um, when it's really, you know, we have snow fog or snog or whatever that's called. <laughs> when, when, when I have over a thousand megawatts of fossil fuel generation online in Michigan, like we did last February during the polar vortex, and we, in several hours, generated not one kilowatt hour of solar power. We have to keep the lights on. It's a, it's a public safety issue. It's, it's our mission. And, and so um, I'm, I, I just want to be a part of an adult conversation around, around renewables and fossils. It's so easy to pick a side, declare your colors that says, if you like this, then you're, you're bad. If, you're like, if you like something else, you're bad. And, and then we fight about this. And it, it's really, we know renewables are part of our future. We're trying to balance the cost of that and take all the good that we can get out of that. We don't have to do that as a lifetime utility planner. It sh I shudder and it makes me really sad to see we don't need to jeopardize the grid to introduce many more carbon-free assets. We need to have some recognition though of the fossil fuel role, very limited role, but a vital role we can't take a blackout for 30 days in a polar vortex event when it's 20 below zero in Michigan. We can't do it. And a rooftop solar with four hours of battery storage for one day won't, won't fill that. So how we transition this over the next 15 to 20 years, I think, is going to require 
real honest communication about that. When will we get to the point where batteries can uh, help us during the peak, where the solar energy at noon can charge a battery that we can utilize from 5 to 7 p.m.? How far away are we from that? If we have technology today that can do a pretty good job storing electricity today and using it for two to four hours within the same day, pretty good technology. What we don't have is a battery that can run eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, and certainly nothing that can run 30 days straight. So that's the weakness we have technologically right now. There's nothing today that allows us to store energy for more than just a couple of hours yeah. effectively. Battery storage might be a future podcast to dig deeper into. I like that. We can do that. Um, but Eric, you said something I think is, is really important, and I, it can't be said enough. I, I think that sometimes these conversations get to the point where they, they become like a battle and you have to be on one side or the other. Yeah. But I think the most productive thing that can happen for us in our membership is we can view it as the partnership that it is. Like we really are all in this bathtub together, right? Yeah. Like we all, we all, we are all dependent on the same grid. And to the extent that we can be rational and look for reasonable solutions, that can, there are solutions out there that I think do accomplish the bulk of the goals set on all sides of these conversations. But where I think things get really derailed is when it becomes a, a com some sort of a competition as opposed yeah. to a partnership with our members. And the way we've, and I think it's, we, we did this kind of, we were a little bit ahead of the curve, rightly, in re restructuring our rates for our distributed generation. But I think those rates are reflective of the right partnership approach, which is if you're gonna sell something onto the grid, I'm gonna figure out how to kind of pay you what I would be paying anyone else selling something onto the grid. But if you're gonna buy it from me, you have to buy it from me at, at, at the same cost as everyone else. And I can't sell it to you at the cost I sell it to everyone else. And I think that's an important point, uh, Rachel, because the, the facts are that, that small scale home projects cost somewhere between two and four times what we can do a large scale solar project for. And Wolverine's been negotiating on several projects for a number of months, and we know those costs. We also know the cost of rooftop solar or even small distributed um, community solar projects like we did at Chairland's office, like we did on M55 near, near the Wolverine headquarters. And the economics are real. It's, it's much more expensive to do smaller scale than it is larger scale. And it invites other challenging conversations about land use and, and all of that. But economics are economics. Mm -hmm. And we, we still have a cost mission that we're really proud of as cooperatives. It's not the only thing. It's also reliability and, and uh, being responsible to our environment in this beautiful place that we live in here in Michigan with un, unimaginable um, access to fresh water and scenery and woods and all of that. Nobody wants to jeopardize that. Uh, but this this is a real balance and 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 we want to keep costs down. We want to be responsible, and we want to keep we want to keep people in the lights, even in a 30-day polar vortex. We sure do, and I and I want to talk, kind of end on on that note in a second. But just to reiterate that I I think we all agree that the future we're headed toward. It, there's there's volatility on the horizon, and one, some of the best tools we'll have to manage that volatility are going to require a stronger partnership, partnerships between Wolverine and Cherryland, which obviously naturally exists due to our business model, but partnerships with our members as well, commercial, industrial, and residential members. And I think that our business model, as 
co-ops is uniquely positioned to be successful in that world. And so uh, while, while it's not fun to have these conversations, at least we're willing to have these conversations. And I think I have a high degree of confidence and optimism. Um, but we've kind of talked around, and, and both of the podcasts we recorded on this issue, reliability, and, and kept pointing out that in many ways our members are really lucky. They haven't had any real reliability issues in Michigan, and certainly not on the um, Cherryland and Wolverine system. But the U.S. has experienced some significant electric system reliability issues this year, whether um, you go back to Texas in February, um, Hurricane Ida, wildfires in California. There's just plenty of reliability issues to point to. How would, and I want both of you to weigh in on this as kind of our, our final remarks, how would you rate Michigan's grid and its vulnerability and then also its kind of overall reliability? I'd rate it pretty high. In my experience at Cherryland, knock on wood, no tornadoes, no ice storms. You know, we get some weather, we get some snow, some cold, and as we talked in a previous podcast, our transmission grid is solid. So I, I think our our reliability here is very good and will be very good going into the future. And I, I don't worry about reliability at Cherryland or in Michigan in general. I, I wish I could say I don't worry about reliability because <laughs> I've, I've, I'm more pessimistic about the future of reliability in Michigan's electric grid today than I ever have been in my career. Um, so let me score it with how I would view our strengths and weaknesses in Michigan, because I think there's a sort of a tale of two cities. On the strengths in Michigan, um, we're, we are a top-tier transmission state. Um, we have a very robust intrastate transmission network. It's well-built, it's well-maintained, um, and I think we're among best in class in terms of our transmission network, and that's a that creates reliability for us for storm um, storm resilience and, and all of that. So I, I think that's really good. So our transmission network is good. We also have a very robust network of interstate gas pipelines that are all within the state of Michigan. And we have the most, we have the largest amount of underground gas storage facilities anywhere in the United States, even more than Texas. So we have a network that other utilities would would be, are very jealous of because I, I so I'm, I'm with Tony in the regard that I think we have the best chance of any to to wade through a lot of um, turbulent seas that are that are coming at us. Here's the weaknesses as I see it, or the sort of the downsides. Um, we have poor interconnections to the outside world. So if you contrast Michigan to someplace like Missouri, Missouri is interconnected with three different, four different markets, uh, almost five different markets has dozens and dozens of transmission line interconnections to other states and other regions. We don't have that in Michigan at all, and that, that's a concerning issue long term. Um, early retirements of coal plants in Michigan concern me. There's a distinct carbon benefit to Michigan. That's real. The math is real. I get that. We also aren't equipped to deal with rapid retirements of coal and still keep the lights on. And we're not, we haven't filled that hole yet. And, and until we do, we're going to have some serious challenges in Michigan. I think the last thing is that we have a market design, and that we could have an entire podcast on this, but we have a market design that essentially does not pay generators to be there to keep the lights on. And until those things are solved, I think we're going to create false economies that drive more generation out the door, and, and we risk not having enough generation long term. Thank you for that. And thank you both for your time. You know, one of the things I'm very proud of at the co-ops is that we do take 
talking to our members about issues that impact them seriously, and we don't hide. And so this is something that clearly is having an impact today on our members' bills, but also something we'll continue to monitor on their behalf on the future or in the future. And I really appreciate both of you taking the time to discuss this today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Rachel. So that was Cherryland General Manager Tony Anderson and Wolverine Power Cooperative President and CEO Eric Baker. If you're interested to learn more about any of the topics we talked about in this special two-part series of Co-op Energy Talk, head on over to Cherryland Electric Co-op to read up on Tony's manager's column, his most recent manager's column on the power supply cost recovery. If there are any topics you'd be interested in exploring in future episodes, we're always looking for ideas. So let us know by messaging us on social media or emailing us at pr at cherrylandelectric.coop. Thanks again for listening. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. Please join us next time for more Co-op Energy Talk.